0: By visiting This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM.
1: Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something.
0: It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history.
1: Well... We haven't run out of history quite
0: yet. Welcome back everyone to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. My name is Tony Black, and with me, as always... Is Duncan Barrett how are you sir I'm not too bad Tony I'm uh, settling back into life in uh,
1: dreary rainy London after a couple of weeks in the south of France so I'm kind of I'm I'm still uh, acclimatizing I think but uh, I, I'm not too bad other than that
0: oh lovely you've been uh, pretty well traveled haven't you this uh, this year with the south of France and Guernsey recently so you're doing pretty well I've been back and forth quite a lot yeah I not haven't, haven't strayed all that far from home territory but uh, <laughs> I've, I've been hopping back and forth a bit yeah yeah it's pretty good you've been doing well and it's... It's Interesting, you mentioned the South of France because that's that's quite a uh, quite a good leading for our for our topic for this episode of primitive culture because um we're going to be talking about France quite a lot because it is the center point of our podcast today which is discussing the uh, the resistance and as I say the resistance I mean um, in terms of Star Trek the uh, various different resistances that uh, have played a major part in some of the series, so the Bajoran resistance. Um, against the Cardassians, the Cardassian resistance against the Dominion, and the uh, the Marquis resistance against the Cardassian uh, colonies out there, and we're going to frame that through having a discussion and a look at the uh, the main resistance that still sticks in the mind of of most people: the resistance against the Nazis by the uh, the French in the Second World War, which has served as a major inspiration, really, Duncan, hasn't it? For a lot of these different resistant group, resistance groups we're going to be talking about in Star Trek.
1: Absolutely, I mean, almost uh, an obsession, I'd say. Actually, looking looking back, I mean, I was going through, you know, doing some rewatching of old episodes for this in preparation for this podcast, and looking at Deep Space Nine episodes in particular. And you know, you mentioned those three separate uh, resistance movements that that come out of that series. It's it's something they sort of keep coming back to again and again and again. And as you say, it's always really the French Resistance which is kind of in the background, the kind of cultural background to that. Uh, sort of historical inspiration I mean there were other resistance uh resistances obviously in the second world war but I guess the French one is the one that has become so kind of archetypal that's become culturally kind of that that's what resistance means to us in a certain ex- uh, sense and, and obviously that's what they were kind of drawing on in the Deep Space Nine stories that they were writing
0: yeah I think it's the one that has stuck in you I say pop culture I think pop culture is the wrong word I think in terms of in terms of cultural resonance throughout the 20th century and beyond, I think if, when you think in terms of resistance, you think about resistance of the Nazis. It is the common you know, framework of that uh, framework of that word. And it, you know, as you say, this, there are other resistances. There have been plenty of resistances throughout history, but this is the one, I think, for our generation and the generations before us. That is one of the big ones that leaps out. And I think it, it is very pervasive over Star Trek. And I think the closest Star Trek probably ever got, actually, to depicting the actual... French Resistance was in the uh, the Killing Game, which is the Voyager Star Trek Voyager two-parter from season four. One of my favourite two-parters, actually, in Trek, which is obviously the uh, the episode where the Hirogen um, take control of Voyager and play out the French Resistance story in a in a sense. And our characters have to um, you know fight fight the Hirogen as Nazis in order to get back control of Voyager. It's it's a, it's a good episode, I think, in terms of actually showing us visually the kind of you know, typical resistance, French resistance kind of tropes. It is, absolutely. And very
1: much, I mean, it's interesting comparing Voyager's version of the French resistance to the various movements that you talked about in Deep Space Nine. All all the stories in Deep Space Nine, there's a lot of shades of grey, there's a lot of grittiness, there's darkness, there's, there's you, you, you know, what does it mean to kill someone? There's all these kind of big issues in voyager it's very much uh, a romp it's an adventure it's there's an element of camp there's there's almost an element of hello, hello, i think in the <laughs> in the background of that episode <laughs> you know maybe not 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 quite that ridiculous but there's there's it's definitely being played for fun i mean there's you know there's sort of a serious story going on at the same time but essentially the killing game i think is is intended to be uh, a bit of a romp and you know so you have Jane way playing this uh, wonderful resistance leader. You have seven of nine doing her kind of nightclub routine, singing by the piano and so on, um, and they 're definitely kind of uh, milking it for that kind of evocation of that era and the kind of glamour of world war two in the movies and and sort of playing up to a lot of those kind of uh tropes and stereotypes
0: should we just spool back a little bit duncan and explain aloe Lo to our american listeners <laughs> because- <laughs> you mean you "Aloha,
1: Lo hasn't hasn't crossed the pond I, I, I,
0: i'd, it I'd love it years. if it had done I'd, i would love it if it had done i've got to be honest but i do wonder "Aloha, Lo was a um a sitcom in the 1980s uh, in the UK um, by uh, two uh, well-known writers, Jimmy Perry and David Croft, who did all these different sitcoms like Dad's Army, they might, you may have heard of, um, and all kinds of different ones. And it was about the, the French resistance against the Nazis, and it was played for Ultra Camp, and it was about a cafe owner called René, who had about had all these mistresses. He had a shrewish wife. It was kind of a bit pally with the Nazis, you know they were, and they were all extremely sort of fay and camp, or, or buffoonish. And you had British RAF pilots who'd crashed. You had clownish America, um, your clownish French policeman, a policeman who couldn't pronounce words properly, so he'd say things like "I was just pissing by" instead of "passing by," which is one of his most favourites. Um, there's lots of it, it was, it was very cartoonish and very camp. But, but oddly enough, I mean, I loved that growing up. I thought that was a great show, and it had a lot of running gags, a lot of very double entendre kind of silly, you know, cheeky gags, but funnily enough it kind of captures Voyager obviously doesn't do this, but it kind of captures that same level of, you know, cliché in terms of how this how this was presented and the idea that it was actually quite okay, you know, it was either glamorous or it was oh they were all they were all kind of in it together, there was a real spirit about it. When the reality is it was a very complicated and quite dangerous scary time for the the French people and really for for wartime Europe absolutely and I mean people who were involved in the resistance they said at one point their life
1: expectancy was seven months basically I mean it was you know it was a, a dangerous time uh, to be a French person but certainly a dangerous pers- time to be a résistant um, and to be you know taking an active role you know whether that was literally going out and, and fighting or as a lot of resistance activities were involved more in intelligence gathering or producing uh, underground newspapers. Um, it, you know, kind of propaganda activities. For example, there was the V sign campaign, basically a sort of anti-Nazi graffiti campaign. You know, so it wasn't all about the uh, the submachine guns and the and the balaclavas and the and the black
0: turtlenecks and so on. There was there was a kind of other side to it as well. Is there a level you think of romanticism subsequently? You know, with all this, I think, I think, I think there was a, there's a level of well, you know, it, it, as you go further away from the actual conflict, all these different, you know, visual, you know, ideas crop up. There's that that idea that it was it was a very daring and dashing time. You know, you've got the the resistance members who are the the Gallic heroes, and you've got the you know the Femme fatales and all, and all these you know these dashing pilots who were doing all these rescue missions and things like that. And I think over time the kind of these recurring sort of glamorous tropes filter down through the ages to the point where the 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 reality of it gets quite distorted. And for this um, for this podcast, Duncan and I both read a book um, called The Resistance, The French Fight Against the Nazis by Matthew Cobb, which is, I would say, essential reading if you want to really learn a lot more about this topic. And it goes into a great level of detail into exactly what the resistance was and what happened. And, you know, in in broad terms, the resistance was essentially the... The collaboration, the response to the collaboration by the uh, the French government to the Nazis when the Nazis invaded Poland and World War II started, they decided in order to heavily sort of shore up their potential assault against the the, the, the British, they would take control of France. You know, and they stormed the French with a massive army, took over, and they they the Vichy, in, in the town of Vichy, a uh, a, a government, a, a, an old marshal called Petain. And uh, various other uh, government members basically surrendered to the Nazis and said, "Okay, you know, we will we will become your your friends, really." And then it became a country of two halves. So it's it's a it's a complicated it's a complicated conflict, and I think it's misunderstood by a lot
1: of people even today. Absolutely, and I think I mean it's interesting when you were talking about how much is our understanding of the resistance a kind of myth? How much of these kind of um, images, these sort of stereotypes uh, repeated and perpetuated and so on. I mean, one of the things that's a, Quite interesting point that comes out of that book is that really maybe to understand that time in France you have to understand these two competing concepts: the concept of collaboration and the concept of resistance. These were the two, like you say, almost the two alternatives. And that sense of the word collaboration, Petain actually coined that word. In a sense, you know, that was a deliberate thing that came out of that time, and he coined it in a positive sense. That you know we are going to collaborate with these people. We're going to uh, ensure the peace. We're going to to work together. We're going to you know, have this process that is going to kind of protect French interests, protect the French people. Um, and obviously, the alternative to that, the resistance was, no, we're not going to do any of that, we're going to fight it, we're going to oppose it in whatever way we can. And not always popular. I mean, I'm currently working on a book about the Channel Islands. And there was no great the Channel Islands were also occupied by the Germans, um, there was no great armed resistance movement for various reasons that I can go into later or another time. But One of the the issues was that when there were activities that took place, for example, they did have a V-sign campaign, a kind of graffiti campaign. uh, A lot of people felt that it was actually not helpful, that they weren't going to boot the Germans out, um, that they were trying their best to kind of live safely, to, to sort of protect the rights of citizens and so on. And that actually, in some way, some of these resistance activities could be rocking the boat. And obviously, this was something that the Germans played on very much with their use of hostages. I mean, this is something that comes up uh, again and again in Deep Space Nine, and and Ducat talked about his approach to to hostages. You, you, you know, if if a hundred Cardassians are killed in an attack, he would he'll kill a hundred random Bajorans. And in the uh, French context in the Second World War, there was actually a, an argument between the German um, command on the ground and Hitler. Hitler felt that if one German soldier was killed, a hundred randomly selected people should be killed in response. It should be a basically a completely disproportionate use of random murder essentially of hostages in order to discourage and in order to take the support away from these movements which again we see in the Cardassian resistance at the end of of deep space nine that's basically the the founder's attitude is they have these um attacks because of damar and his resistance movement and they just start destroying Cardassian cities and they say basically for every attack that the resistance makes we're going to kill another you know however many million people that is so it's very much this idea of of kind of um trying to draw support away from what otherwise could be, of course, a very popular movement. And, and only a tiny fraction, obviously, of, of French people were active members of the resistance. I mean, I think it's something like 5% of the population. And one of the things that Matthew Cobb says in that book, which is quite interesting, is that after the war, there was this kind of desire to... Kind of push aside the collaborationist stuff that went on in the war to try and almost wipe that clean from history to kind of present a version of France where everyone was a résistant, where everyone was helping in some way, where everyone was was doing their bit to defy that regime, which is maybe what you see to some extent in the kind of allo alloisation of the resistance. Um, but that in fact, obviously, it was a you know it was a, a very significant movement, a very important movement uh, militarily up
0: in the end, but still represented a very small number of people. And it was also something that was very scattered, as in there were a number of, of different cells operating, you know, with their own agendas and their own orders and their own plans, you know, in terms of sabotage, in terms of propaganda, as you said earlier, very, very often not working as a collective unit and only working as a collective unit when they had to. Ostensibly sort of cleaving to the, uh, the government in exile, in a sense, which was represented by Charles de Gaulle, who was the French military officer who fled to London as the Nazis were were invading. And he kind of set himself up as the, you know, the would-be saviour, essentially. And, he, and there's, there's a real, really interesting element of the fact de Gaulle was a little bit obsessed with the idea that he was France, that he represented France, that he represented the trueness of France going back. And he wanted, and he wanted to institute a very sort of, militaristic, relatively hardline government when he got into power. And he was supported by Churchill and supported by the Allies in order to stake his claim on France once they won the war. And as time went on and they realized, yeah, we're gonna win the war, but what will be left of France in the in the end? It became a very interesting thing and, and his involvement with the resistance was very difficult and it was very much a, you know, a battle of wills. And I suppose the comparison to Star Trek in terms of the Bajoran resistance, which is a very, very similar you know, kind of conflict was the fact that in Deep Space Nine, we learned through often the, the the you know the stories around Kira that there were specific resistant cells, and they were operating in a very similar way. And you all had all these different Bajorans who were attacking Cardassian targets. Without a level often of centralization, they were absolutely, and I mean she explains that to
1: demar when she 's training his his resistance groups basically they they have a kind of debate about it because they 're coming from a military background, they want to run things like an army, and she 's basically saying to them, look you can 't do that because if if you have that kind of centralized structure uh, it 's going to be too easy to take the resistance out in a sense you, you know you need to have these individual cells, you need to have a lack of you, you know, so that if someone's captured and tortured, they actually don't have enough information to, to, to make such a big difference. I mean, I think in the French case, it wasn't so much a matter of choice. That's kind of just how it sprang up. And we talk about the resistance as if it was one sort of monolithic thing. I mean, in fact, there were many, many resistance movements. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I found reading that book, it's bewilderingly complicated. The number of different groups, the number of different, uh, goals that they had, because, I mean, they were all obviously dedicated to getting the Nazis out of France. But beyond that, you know, many of them were socialists. Some of them, as you mentioned, were quite right wing, you know, on the other side. Uh, They had different visions of what they wanted the new France to be. I mean, you talk about de Gaulle basically sort of wanted to set himself up as the the kind of inheritor of the previous um the third republic the previous version of french government before vichy and to kind of bring things back to that with him in charge the resistance in many cases were looking forward to a new future that was going to be quite different you know they weren't necessarily all socialists but or or communists but they um in many cases, they felt that the France they wanted to build was going to be different. It was going to be better. It was going to be fairer. So they had this kind of utopian vision. And we see that a bit with the Marquis in uh, in Star Trek. I'm thinking of the, the Eddington episodes. Um, he sort of talks about he talks about the fact that the the Marquis were hoping, when they were doing quite well against the Kardashians before they got wiped out basically, they had these plans to set themselves up as a kind of independent state, to set up their own kind of mini federation. And there's definitely a sense, you know, he talks about the fact that they grow their own food, that they have different values to the kind of futuristic modern scientific federation values that that we're familiar with. And there's this kind of romanticised idea of the kind of community that they're going to build, the kind of values that they have, the kind of uh, society in a sense and we see that you know particularly um in the marquee episodes i mean i'm thinking again in the next generation with preemptive strike there's an element of romance around that there's an element of this kind of robin hood quality these these this community that Rolaron gets drawn into and it's about food and drink and kind of making friends and 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 so on and it I think for a lot of people who were involved in resistance activities, uh, particularly the armed resistance activities, that was a big element of it. I mean, actually, the the very last chapter of that book that we both read has an interesting quote from one one of the former resistance, and he's talking about Um, what it was like that period of life and he basically says it was a kind of it was a magical time and if i had to put a word to it the word i'd put to it is happiness um so despite living in under threat of constant death despite you know uh this terrible situation they were in um the terrible things they had to do there was a kind of sense of community and a sense of togetherness that really these
0: people had never experienced in their lives before and never did again after yeah and it's really interesting how it kind of i think for a lot of people sort of created yeah a level of a level of spirit around them that they that they'd lost, you know. And there is in in the in the real life story of France, there is that element of, as you said, you know, the country that existed before, a country that had leaders who were quite willing to hand over power to, you know, a bloodthirsty fascist regime, which is very telling in itself of the kind of people they were. But then it's the idea of what would what would France become next, and you know, you, you're thinking in terms of like De Gaulle and all this idea, you know, you're thinking about Bajor the idea that when they did kick the Cardassians out and they managed to get con- get back control and they set up the provisional government, it is that idea of, well, what happens next? And obviously the Federation are there acting like the Allies, essentially, aren't they? They are the, you know, the Churchill, de Gaulle sort of, you know, not if not if not de Gaulle, then certainly the Churchill American, you know, representative in this. And that, that's why, obviously, you know, Cisco is sent to oversee Deep Space Nine when it's, when Terok Nor becomes, you know, a Federation outpost in order to help Bajor... Build a government to build a society again to actually, you know, def- keep the Cardassians at bay, and it's it's a, it's an interesting sort of idea in terms of Bajor. What when Kira and Shakar and all the Resistance cells manage to win, what kind of Bajor do they then create? And it's it's an interesting, obviously, you know, element to the whole of Deep Space Nine, and obviously, you know, the Federation aspect. And all the complicated stories around Bajor in terms of the religious side of things with the Kai and, and the, the Vedex and obviously the Emissary itself. And then the Dominion getting involved and all this kind of thing. It sort of builds a picture of Bajor's future being very crucial to the whole overarching story. But its I'm as, I'm as interested in a way of what follows something like this as to what came before or caused it. And its it's a fascinating idea, really. And I suppose distance... And time has allowed us to see it in in terms of what France ended up becoming, and you know De Gaulle did eventually get into power, you know, around the late forties. But it's it's in terms of Star Trek, it's very interesting what happens afterwards. And of course, in Deep
1: Space Nine, you know, the first the early seasons of Deep Space Nine is very much in that after period. You know, it's kind of, I mean, unfortunately, we don't see. I, I would be kind of interested to see the immediate transition, you, you, you know, because we're kind of coming in a little bit later on. I mean. I was curious watching some of these episodes. I was, I was thinking about things like, for example, so that there's a, a kind of discussion in those early episodes about the fact that Kira has, has taken a commission in the, in the Bajoran militia. So she's, you know, she's a major now. She has a kind of official military role as opposed to being a kind of terrorist in a resistance cell. I mean, things like that. I was just kind of curious, how does that work? Where did the militia come from? I mean, was the militia part of the regime before? You know, how were those kind of collaborationist structures incorporated going forward? There's, with the provisional government, there's this kind of, they're sort of somewhere between the sort of slightly unsatisfactory de Gaulle kind of government in exile, and even the kind of Vichy government. You know, there's, there's, there's corruption in the provisional government. They're not very satisfactory. No one seems very happy with them. I mean, France, in reality, had a provisional government for two years uh, to, towards the end of, and immediately after the Second World War, while they kind of got things on track. But in Deep Space Nine, the provisional government seems to be kind of sticking around for a very long time without really doing anything, or without really sort of moving forward into the new Bajor that everyone is looking for. And that planet certainly seems to be kind of slightly lost. I mean, that transitional period is not going smoothly. There's a kind of lack of focus. There's, you, you know, in the Circle trilogy, we have this whole thing about how they, they need sort of figureheads to rally around. You know, they needed the old Kai who who has now disappeared. They need this, uh, this resistance leader, as it turns out, needs to be this kind of symbolic figure that they can can rally around because i suppose in a sense they've come out of a period where the resistance performed this role i mean the resistance were heroes they were you know they were the ones fighting back in a sense and they had a great kind of cachet and a great kind of aura around them as indeed the the french resistance did in many in many cases i mean there are stories of you know, the resistance coming down out of the hills and, and parading through the towns and being applauded by the local people and so on and, and obviously the local people sending them food and drink and all these kind of things but I suppose what we see with Bajor is there's the kind of, once it becomes a political system, a, a sort of functioning society it's lost that air of romance and it's lost that narrative really that was holding everything together
0: It is interesting because it does have its 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 equivalent figures from the French resistance, you know it has people like like Lee Nallis, who ends up, you know, being part of the Circle trilogy, you know, a legendary resistance fighter who ends up obviously being being a pawn of a of an attempted coup, you know, from the provisional government with Minister Jaro and all those guys. Um, to re- and the Circle trilogy is really is a, is the really interesting sort of sequel almost, I think, to the occupation in terms of Bajor's future. It's a great story that is very political in, in basis, and it really gets into a lot of the aftermath in that really well. And then you had people like Shikar, obviously, who is you know, it's a shame in a way because he kind of ultimately becomes m- more of a sort of love interest for Kira than someone who's particularly interesting after the time in his own right. Shikar, and then he's quite ignominiously killed off, you know. And it's it's a bit of a shame because I think he's it, he's for me the the analogue of the real life figure of Jean Moulin, who was uh, one of the one of the key main sort of you know heroes in inverted commas of the resistance. You know, he was somebody who. He was working for de Gaulle in many respects, you know, but he was he was there and he was he was he 's now kind of like the representative figure if you look at a resistance sort of fighter you know that he, he was very dashing looking he was very you know he was very heroic he ends up he ends up being killed long before the end of the war actually so he 's almost a martyr as well and then so if you if you have these kind of characters, they are kind of the resistance was never led by one person in the French resistance, and you get the sense that it 's the same with Bajor but these heroes whether they live or die end up becoming those figureheads and they end up becoming very important to the narrative of the whole thing and you know that narrative is questionable you know there are, there are many points in deep space 9 where the, the the response of the resistance is questioned you know kira has to face a few demons in terms of this uh, as to yeah the resistance were fighting for bajor's freedom but you know what what did they what did they do for that you know actually what how many people died uh, you know, for that, you know, how many how many innocent people may have got caught in the crossfire? You know, for these essentially terrorist acts that that they were undertaking against the Cardassian government. You know, and, and Ducat would be the first person to turn around and say, "Well, they were terrorists." You know, uh, and, and people were dying because of these. You know, and he's very righteous about that, even though he's essentially, you know, you know, a, a, an equivalent of a Nazi death camp. You know, commander, really. But it's it is that interesting moral question that they do confront sometimes in Deep Space Nine, even if you know i would say on the whole they are still presented as heroes yeah Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's something that people were aware of at the time. I mean, there are some interesting, there's an interesting article that's quoted in that book, which basically, I'll read a bit of it. It says, and this was sort of about trying to encourage people to support the resistance, I suppose, not to, not to play into the kind of Nazi line of these people are just causing trouble. It says, we're not obsessed with murder. In fact, we're obsessed with a peaceful and happy life in which we can create, build and love. But those who want to stop us from living must die. Our duty is clear. We must kill. If you dare not risk your life, it loses its value and we will do nothing to defend it. But if you carry on the duty of war, we'll be brothers in arms. Do you want to live or die? And that's the kind of attitude. It's it's very much, you know, it's not about, I mean, in the same uh, article, another point, it says, kill without passion and without hate, never torture or inflict suffering. You know, it's not about kind of violence for violence's sake it's not these are not people who necessarily wanted to to wage a war or to wage a campaign but this is their kind of patriotic duty in a sense and that it's the duty of all French people to support them whatever the cost and that does mean that people are going to die and Kira talks about that a lot um, in relation to the Cardassian resistance actually later on because there's a debate again with the Cardassians who are saying well we want to target uh, Dominion troops and Dominion installations, we don't want to target our own people who are on the essentially collaborationist side. And she says, you can't do that um, because if you start doing that, they'll just use your people as human shields uh, because they know that you're not going to target them. And you have to accept that if they're collaborating, they're legitimate targets and that the Bajoran resistance, you you know, kill plenty of collaborators as well. I mean, early on in Deep Space Nine, the episode Necessary Evil, uh, it turns out that Kira herself assassinated a collaborator um, and and got away with it because Odo didn't believe she was guilty. Uh, And, you know, obviously there's the kind of moral disquiet around, you know, her killing someone in that situation. But at the same time, they were... It's what she comes to say later in Deep Space Nine. She says, you know, if you're not fighting them, you're helping them. And that was very much the attitude that she puts forward. And that, I suppose a lot of people involved in the French resistance felt the same way that you, you know, if you're not on our side, you're, you're with them basically. And you're our enemy.
0: And I, th- I think that becomes very sharply put into focus, especially for Kira in the episode, the collaborator, which is obviously the, the deep space nine, you know, attempt to really get into this idea of collaboration and, and what it meant to actually, you know, side with the enemy. And and it wasn't as easy, it was complicated. It wasn't as easy. I mean, in in, in in Terms of France, it became a country of two halves. The northern part of the country was occupied by the Nazis, and resistance there was very different. You know, it was it was much more grimy and underground and grimy and out in the open. I, I mean, you know, and it was it was out, it was there. But in in the Vichy resistance, you know, there was that level of it, it happening, but everyone sort of so, sort of kind of turns a blind eye to it. You know, they they're, they're doing things about it. The Vichy are going out there trying to arrest them, but there is it is much more sort of propaganda it's more that kind of trying to remind everyone well you know we've 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 allowed these people to come in and rule us and the south obviously was under a french government a puppet regime essentially but they had a lot more freedoms. The people were able to go out and do their normal thing, essentially. And it, it was a working country to an extent, except all the, you know, all the, um, the, pr- the produce, essentially, and the economy would end up going to the Nazi machine. And, and then as things, as time went on and things got more desperate for the Nazis, they started shipping more people out to work in Germany and all kinds of things like that. But ultimately, it was that idea of, you know, if you collaborate, your life will be better. And they had to weigh that against the idea of whether or not they wanted the resistance influence there, you know, and whether or not they they didn't they didn't see it in the terms that people in the north would have done, where it was a you know it was a death factory in a sense. And it, it's so it's it's a complicated and fascinating thing collaboration, and it isn't as easy not easy to just pin down as they collaborated, so they were eni- they were the enemy or they were wrong when you when you're faced with that situation. Certainly as people on the ground, you know, the, the, the Vichy collaborators who, who, who shook Hitler's hand, it's very different for them, you know, they, they knew what they were doing. But the people on the ground...
1: It's not that simple, is it? No, absolutely. And I mean, you know, we we see that in Deep Space Nine as well. I mean, Odo's role in, you know, first of all in the in the original occupation, but then subsequently in the occupation of the station in the sixth season is is very much. I mean, he is basically a collaborationist. Um, you, you know, he's an appeaser. He's kind of trying to to keep order. He's trying to avoid kind of um, a crackdown. He's very much actually. You know I was talking earlier about the Channel islands in, in in Guernsey, one of the Channel Islands, their leader was a guy called Sherwell Ambrose Sherwell, and he um, coined this this idea of a model occupation basically and he said he felt that if the the local government the states of, of Guernsey could op- could operate as a kind of buffer between the Germans and the people that they could kind of protect the people and essentially, as he put it, run the occupation for the Germans. It didn't work, basically. Uh, He ended up going to prison. He ended up uh, saying that it had been a stupid idea and that he he regretted it, basically, because ultimately it wasn't possible to have that kind of arrangement with the Germans, even though the the occupation of Channel Islands was by no means as brutal as the occupations, you know, in France or or Europe. It was, to a certain extent, a model occupation. But but Sherwell kind of trying to occupy that role, trying to kind of stand in the middle and, and appease both sides, found that, ultimately that that sort of almost wasn't possible um and i suppose you you know you very much see that with the arguments between odo and kira when when they set up their resistance cell on the station you know she's kind of by that point committed to causing as much trouble as possible to you know blowing things up starting fights you know uh cause chaos basically chaos and mischief and and kind of damage morale and that sort of thing and he's he's much more focused on keeping the peace and and order and we see that that was true you know even in the in the original occupation, although there's this idea that Odo's this very just guy and he has this great sense of, of fairness and everyone trusts him, the Bajorans trust him to investigate because they know he's not corrupt. And it's true, he's not corrupt in the way that the Cardassian police and, and so on are obviously corrupt. But at the same time, he has this what he values more than anything is order and peace and kind of, um, same as the rest of the changelings. You you know, the founder kind of has the same attitude. The the female changeling has the same attitude. It's this kind of, um, they don't like trouble they don't like uh individuality i suppose in a sense which creates um mischief and creates kind of chaos and there's there's definitely an element of that where it does sort of play into the hands of the he's an authoritarian i suppose is a way of looking at it he he might be a benign authoritarian but at the same time in some intuitive way he he is kind of on the side of the Cardassians because he he wants order just as Descartes does
0: yeah and and that's and and that's makes it even more complicated in that sense, you know, it really does it, you know, it, it muddies the waters in terms of, you know, who who are the heroes and who are the villains. And that, that's that's the really complicated and interesting thing about occupation itself, you know, and why there are no easy answers. And I suppose it's it's a different kind of set of circumstances for the Marquis. You know, you mentioned the Marquis earlier. And uh, interestingly, the word Marquis comes from the French Resistance. And it was appropriated by the uh, Star Trek writers when they came up with the idea of the Marquis. And the Marquis, obviously, are the uh, colonists, the Federation colonists, who end up, thanks to the uh, signing of a treaty after a, a border war between the Federation and the Cardassians, they end up on the wrong side, essentially, of the border. And they end up, you know, as, it, it, in essence, being a Car- Cardassian space sort of territory, and the Cardassians put a lot of, of, you know, in a demilitarized zone, and the Cardassians put a lot of, you know, pressure and on them to actually, you know, ideally get rid of them so they can have the planet for themselves. And the Marquis... You know when they when they resist and they want to actually you know live in this and this world even though the Cardassians are trying to get rid of them, they become a very different kind of resistance don't they from a you know a civilization under occupation trying to take back their world they do uh yeah no definitely that's true and and I think I mean it's interesting one benefit
1: for me of of reading that book over the last few weeks is i i had always understood the resistance and the Marquis to be essentially the same thing. But actually, the Marquis, I suppose, in the historical context, are maybe what we think of when we think of the resistance. But actually, they were kind of a later development and and we were sort of talking about you you know what leads people into resistance and what kind of diverts them away from resistance towards collaboration actually the germans massively shot themselves in the foot because the reason the resistance really got going in a major way and the marquee got going was they started essentially trying to kind of conscript uh labor um from the the french people so they were they were trying to basically force young men into working uh for the germans and the young men resisted that i mean they 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 were against that idea and they fled off into the hills and the word Marquis literally it means a kind of scrubland basically it's a Corsican word that means scrubland and it refers to these kind of hilly areas in France where these young men would retreat from their villages from their towns wherever they were living and they would go and hide in these kind of communities up in the hills and it was very much you know we talked about the kind of Robin Hood uh, element there was an element of that you know they were up in the hills apparently they couldn't drink water because the water was not safe so they had to drink wine there was a great sense of community (laughs) but they were also just these these young men at a loose end. They were against the government. They'd basically, you, you know, they, they'd they removed themselves from society. Uh, large groups of angry young men willing to fight, willing to do something. And all they needed was for people to put a gun in their hand and kind of tell them where to go. And you've got these kind of like mini armies all over the place. And in some cases, they they basically took quite large uh, chunks of territory. I mean, they would... Uh, the Germans, or, or the, the the Vichy government anyway, would declare kind of no-go zones, basically, where the Marquis controlled a certain area and and it wasn't really safe to to combat them in, in that space. And they did, as I mentioned earlier, they would parade down into the towns, they made their own uniforms, they made this whole sort of thing. So they kind of set themselves up as this sort of alternative, again, slightly utopian kind of version of, of France. Um, and I suppose with the Marquis in Star Trek, you, you know later on, uh, it, initially, it's very much about just disputing this treaty and disputing these borders and so on. But later on, there is definitely a sense of this kind of community, particularly with the Eddington, the later Eddington episodes, this idea of this group of people, they have a kind of um, a community spirit. You, you know, we find out he's got a wife among the Marquis. And there's a real idea that they're fighting for something noble uh, and something decent. Hence, you know, someone like Cassidy Yates is is supporting them. Someone like Chief O'Brien actually uh, is quite supportive of a lot of their the things that they stand for. You Know, he can see things from their perspective very much so there's a kind of it's very different they're, they're not people under occupation exactly although in a sense they're in a very similar position but they're they they seem to have a cause they have a kind of noble sentiment and with those deep space nine episodes as well with eddington and also kind of going in a retroactive sense going forward into voyager there's this association with uh les miserables you, you know the the episode for the uniform between eddington and cisco there's this big theme under under all of it about uh, Victor hugo 's novel, and, and Eddington is saying that he sees himself as Valjean, the hero of the novel and, and he sees Cisco as Javert, the kind of um, the, the policeman who devotes his life to tracking him down in this kind of maniacal uh, obsessive uh, totally unreasonable way in a sense and I suppose if we think of the Marquis in those terms as, as not just being about the French resistance model where they take their name from, but being connected to the the Hugo novel you know the, the the Victor Hugo novel it and and the musical of course that's based on it is about a large chunk of it is about the the June Rebellion. It was called. I always thought it was the French Revolution. I, I until I yes. watched the film this week <laughs> and also started reading the book. <laughs> but um, it, it was actually a you know a completely different a failed revolution. So it wasn't about the the revolution that succeeded. It was about a revolution that that sputtered out and was a disaster and everyone died. Uh, which of course everyone knows if they've seen Les Mis. I suppose. But but I suppose it's interesting to think of it in those terms because that again is exactly what happens to the Marquis. You know they have this moment of glory. They have this moment where they think they're going to win. They've got these plans for the future. They've got this great utopian society they want to create, and then they're wiped out in this quite brutal, shocking way. Mm. So they're not—they're not the French Resistance, kind of uh, boldly going forward to a, a new future. Uh, They're—they're—I they're, they're, suppose like the pockets of the French Resistance, which that did happen to, and, and got massacred, and and you, you know individual cells were completely wiped out in, in situations like that.
0: Yeah, there, there is definitely that analogy. And I, th- I think the, the, the marquee element in the real world, there was still that level of when the war was over and when France was liberated... It was that a level of, well, what do we do now? You know, like you said, it was all these young men who'd been given guns. And there was the whole, there was a very interesting, um, you know, difficulty with the Allies and with de Gaulle and with the, the, essentially the provisional government in waiting as to, you know, whether or not they should be allowed to access Allied arms, arms caches or arms drops that had been sent, you know, because de Gaulle was worried that these these guys could, because essentially once the war was over, form a resistance against him in many ways and actually want to create their own country. And he'd kind of be shut out and they'd say, no, well, we fought for this country. This is our country. So there was a real genuine, you know, fear that these rebels of the Nazis could end up becoming rebels of the French and and create this very, like you said, quite utopian socialist idea of a, of a nation, you know, with, with a real sense of spirit. And instead of having going back to a, a level of government and a level of rule that they saw as either corrupt or weak, which was, which was, you know, very much the idea of the Vichy collaborators in that, you know, that Patan was an old man, you know, he was in his like eighties when the, when the Nazis invaded and he represented a, a France that was, you know, a long, <laughs> you know, a very, a very long gone sort of society. So, the The marquee in the real sense we're we're interested in and in in the in the sense of Star Trek, there is that idea of well yeah if 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 you do manage to get your your- you know your planet and your collection of planets back well you know what what do you do then you know what who are you and what are you and I think Eddington, like you said, Eddington sort of gives them more of a personality in a way, i think, and it ma- it makes his character is a tr- is a terrific character, and his relationship with Cisco becomes a fascinating set of episodes. That you know really <laughs> brings out that obsessive you know side of Cisco as you mentioned earlier, and that real sort of slightly crazed driven side of Cisco that is great when Avery <laughs> Brooks gets to play him. But it's it, it brings out that level of you know in the marquee, that sense of of real freedom fighting and having this you know destiny almost. And then when they are crushed by the the Dominion, which no which they never imagined would happen, it's really. A, a, a powerfully
1: sort of tragic end for them. It is, yes. And I suppose the thing with the Marquis, I mean, as I said, it's, there's a kind of nobility to their cause. There's, you know, this old friend of Cisco who's quite a senior person in the Marquis, who ends up being killed as well. It, it is tragic. It is tragic the way that they get wiped out, because they do have this kind of idealism. They do have this kind of romanticism. And I suppose the other way of looking at the relationship between them and and Victor Hugo's novel is that, it, it, you know, Jadzia in that episode, she basically, she, she's quite dismissive of it. She basically says, oh, I hate Victor Hugo. Um, and, and she sort of implies it's sentimental nonsense, basically. You know, she says the way he w- writes women is terrible. Um, and I think with Hugo, there is an element of he has a very strong kind of idealism, a real kind of humanism, a sort of belief in not in the institutions of society, because the book is quite critical about those, but in kind of human decency, human compassion. You know, Jean Valjean, the the hero of the book, really is a kind of, he could be a Starfleet captain. He's the ultimate kind of compassionate man. He sacrifices himself again and again for other people, whether or not they deserve it. You know, he's like Janeway saving the Ocampa. He's kind of, you you know, he's willing to, to torture himself in a sense in order to do the right thing he won't kill this man who has pursued him for most of his life and tried to ruin his life on numerous occasions he lets him go out of mercy you you know and I think there's an element maybe of in that episode what we see is that Eddington is this real idealist. He believes in this kind of utopian vision. He believes in this kind of goodness in people. He believes in this kind of, this sort of positive vision. And ironically, it's it's very Star Trek. I mean, Victor Hugo is very much, it's a kind of Roddenberry concept of, you know, the humans. There's a line in the book where he says um, that the human soul is is vaster than the universe. There's a kind of element of that kind of it, almost godliness within human beings and their capacity for good um and jadzia seems to be quite kind of dismissive of that and of course what we see in the episode is at the end of that episode cisco does something extremely dubious you know basically he, he makes all these people homeless he potentially he, he, you know does something very dangerous to these colonists in order to to get eddington to do what he likes and it kind of undercuts that idealism and i can't help thinking in that episode you know we know that deep space nine is very much the star trek series that is interested in shades of gray is interested in getting out of the roddenberry box is interested in kind of questioning those sort of ideals and assumptions and so on and i think in some ways in that episode you see a kind of a microcosm of that because the kind of eddington is actually it, it, it has that sort of blinkered vision that kind of idealism and really you know jadzia and in a different way cisco reacting against that they're kind of saying well you know yeah that's nice but but life's more complicated and things don't always work out and as we see you know the Marquis end up in deep space nine getting completely obliterated you know that's a kind of brutal uh sort of real outcome for that it's it's not the kind of heroic fight that's going to
0: end gloriously well i wonder if that's not the writer's making a little commentary on the idea of whether, whether, you know, pure idealism never works, pure socialism never works, pure, you know, utopia never really works. And I suppose, you know, in, in, in other Star Trek series, not to denigrate at all, it would have been a little, more, a little bit more simplistic. With Deep Space Nine, it is that idea that, yeah, you might, you might win this battle, but you won't win the war, necessarily, and there, there will always be another com- conflict to fight. You know, there's, there's a lot about history repeating in Deep Space Nine. But I suppose, you know, maybe the, the simplistic element can sort of play in when you think about the Marquee and Voyager because, obviously, the Marquee, it, it, in a way, people, I think, almost forget this about Voyager, in that ma- the Marquee were a su- hugely crucial part of the DNA of that show. But, you know, I've given the fact that, you know, Janeway has to make half her crew, essentially, the Marquee when they're thrown into the Delta Quadrant, when she's chasing a Marquee ship piloted by Chakotay, and then they end up coming together. And, I mean, I've... I don't know if I've talked on on Trek FM about this, but I've I've I know I've written about it and I've talked about it before. In that I I think there was a there was a really candid interview with with Ron, Ronald D Moore where he was extremely critical about Voyager, and and I think a lot of what he said was true in terms of the fact that it was a, a hugely missed opportunity in terms of what they could have done with the Marquee and the stories they could have told that would have made made Voyager a much darker. Show, but it, I mean, it would have made it Battlestar Galactica in many ways. You know what, what? eventually we got from Ronald D. Moore in many respects, but I think it was such a shame that the the Trek, you know, family and the Trek universe weren't quite ready for that at that point because there was potential for a really interesting idea about what do the marquee do when they don't have a cause to fight for anymore. And, and, and that could have been a major part of the story in Voyager, but it really doesn't happen particularly,
1: does it? No, I think, I mean, I think it's true. I think in a sense, Voyager kind of dropped the ball with the marquee. And it's weird because there was so much setup, you know, going into that series. There's all the Deep Space Nine stuff going into it. There was, you know, the penultimate episode of The Next Generation was a marquee episode, you know, again, kind of leading into Voyager, which was about to debut. Um, and then they kind of don't know what to do with it. And I think it, it is partly a structural problem, you know, as you say, what do they do? Because their whole identity is bound up in fighting Cardassians. The There's no Cardassians to fight. So what are they going to do? So the Marquis become from being these freedom fighters with a cause that is quite noble and from having these kind of interesting, complex political uh, sort of debates going on around them and, and their methods and their, their and their goals and whether they're doing things the right way and so on. Really, they just become a group of kind of Starfleet dropouts because it turns out that, you know, all the marquee characters in the show pretty much have at least been Starfleet Academy or, or you, you know, in Chakotay's case, have, have served in Starfleet for some time. And so it's, they're more kind of reduced to the level. And I'm thinking about the episodes where, you know, Tuvok has to get them into shape and later there's one where Janeway kind of has to get some, some random crew into shape. They're just kind of slightly bad Starfleet. Uh, recruits in a sense, you know, they're, they're undisciplined they're kind of, they're, they're, they're not really behaving themselves But so, so they're sort of reduced to the level of kind of disobedient children in a sense um, and Takota of course is completely neutralised because he he basically comes on board completely at the end of Caretaker and is then you, you know, is is not to all intents and purposes a marquee character at all. I mean, Balana, I suppose you see a little bit of it, you know, in terms of her kind of attitude and so on, sort of struggling to adjust to that. But but really, they, they don't do much with it. And I don't know whether it's, you know, because actually they they realised that, they, that they'd made a mistake in setting up this whole storyline which was about a specific political situation that was actually going to be totally irrelevant to the show that they were writing or if they just kind of bottled it somehow and, and you know as you say there could have been there could have been an interesting question about the fact that these people I suppose you saw with the character of Suda you know someone who who had a place in that context you know who as a resistance fighter was was a good guy but in a sort of a bit like someone who, who's a great soldier and then comes home and, and you know, becomes abusive or, or is kind of troubled in various ways because they don't know how to channel that into civilian life. I suppose you you saw an element of that, but certainly they didn't go anywhere near as far with with that aspect of the storyline as they could have
0: done. But it, it is interesting how they kind of immediately sort of homogenised back into the, the Starfleet model. They kind of are soaked back up into the, the very organisation that they were fighting against, you know, that they rebelled against. That, you know, I mean, because, you know, in this show, the Marquis are, are as critical of the Federation as they are the Cardassians. In many ways, they're fighting the Federation as much... You know, and the Federation are a very, very much a traditional sort of very uh, militaristic force who who want to stop them. Who are you know they are sympathetic to their cause, but ultimately they want to smack them around the head and send them home with their supper. You know what I mean? It's that whole idea of you will toe the line because you're going to threaten a, a greater good and a greater peace. So you know the idea of the Marquis is that they are quite rebellious. They are quite you know they're angry. They're angry at the situation. They're angry that they've been betrayed by the by the Federation that they thought would back them. And when you get into Voyager, and very quickly, you know Chakotay is having nice little lunches with Janeway in her ready room. You think to yourself, "Well, hang on a minute, right? This guy would have been angry. He, he and I, I think that they could have had, they could have had an entire mutiny." You know, hi, hi kind of idea. I think they play with it in the episode Worst Case Scenario, you know, in a couple of seasons down the road. But it's, it's it's ultimately a holodeck, you know, thing and a gambit. And you think to yourself, well, you could have had an amazing run where it takes a good couple of seasons for these people to start trusting each other. And you could have had a real sense of, well, who's in control of this ship? Who is really running things? They're out in the middle of nowhere then what, why immediately would they all cleave to Janeway? Why wouldn't they turn around and say, well, hang on a minute, right? This, this is going to be our cause now. We're going to take control of this shit. We're going to go home. We're going to finish what we started. And it, I, every time I watch Voyager, I see it. I see the potential. And I think to myself, this could have been such a fascinating show that you just didn't have the balls to do it. And I, I think it was also the fact it was the wrong time. You know, I think if they were making the idea of Voyager now in this, in this you know, quite honestly, golden age of telly, I think it would have been a different show. I think they would have had the guts to do it. But, you know, benefit of hindsight and all that. But it's just a shame that the marquee in that side of things does get reduced, like you said, to rebellious kind of, you know, Starfleet officers and and not very good ones at that. And it's it's unfortunate because they were more complicated and there was more to them. And at least, you know, they get a good send-off in a way, I suppose, in deep space nine it may be also that
1: part of the element was there was a lot of anxiety about the fact they decided to do a show with a female captain i think they were they were really conflicted about you, you know what the character of janeway was you know was she kind of tough was she feminine was she you, do you know what i mean all the was her hair up or down or, or this way or the other and you, you know how do we kind of represent a woman being in command and i think maybe the threat to her authority that the marquis could have presented was just something that maybe they didn't dare touch because they were already tying themselves in knots over whether they'd, they'd made a terrible mistake by thinking that a woman could have that authority. And there was so much anxiety about the fact that they were doing this, that I think that kind of made them very cautious on a lot of, in a lot of other areas. And maybe this was kind of, to some extent, a casualty of that. And it also sort of explains why they end up being seen as kind of stroppy teenagers, because in many ways the way that they went with Janeway as a leader was that she became this quite maternal character uh, to the crew. You know, her leadership style compared to the other captains is very much she's the kind of nurturing mother who wants to keep them all together and protect them all and kind of, you, you know, look after her crew in a sense. You know, going in that direction, it does become much more about kind of you know straightening out the unruly teenagers and kind of getting them to to kind of play ball rather than this kind of real clash of ideology which i suppose is what you saw you you know in deep space nine and also in next generation in preemptive strike we can believe that that for Rolaren there's a real dilemma there and you 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 know which side really represents what she what her values are and what she believes in and 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 who is in the right and it's an open question I mean you know the the Federation doesn't come out of that situation very well they they have signed this treaty that has not respected the rights of their own their own people Um, and it's interesting you say that they're the Marquis are as much against the Federation I suppose the issue is that they're militarily they're against the Cardassians. It's the Cardassians they're always attacking and they keep saying, Look, stay out of it. We're not attacking the Federation. We don't want to fight you. Just leave us alone But they're the Federation's problem because they are actually their citizens and they have to they have to kind of take control of them. So that's sort of part of where that whole thing, you, you, you know and, and the kind of Les Miserables connection as well with Eddington and Cisco is that idea he, he basically just keeps saying, why don't you leave me alone? You know, what's wrong with you? You're, you're obsessed with catching me, you're obsessed with uh, putting an end to this, it's, it's mad and in the kind of Les Mis connection. It is mad. You know, this is a policeman who is is devoting himself to this guy who has basically been reformed. You, you, you know, he committed a criminal act, a very minor criminal act. He was punished for it wildly, excessively by society. Uh, he came out of it. He reinvented himself. He started a new life. He was doing good. He was helping the community. He was doing all these wonderful things. Um, and the, But the policeman just cannot recognise that that basically a criminal can do good. And I suppose that's part of what the theme of, the, of that story is, I mean, although I was saying it's kind of morally simplistic, it's morally s- simplistic insofar as people are kind of good or bad, whatever, but it's not morally simplistic insofar as it basically, you know, the, the instruments of the state can be very cruel and unjust and ordinary people, be they criminals, prostitutes, you know, whatever, are treated with a lot of sympathy, you know, an understanding of how they came to, to do certain things, to make certain decisions, and the idea that people can kind of be be redeemed in a sense and i suppose what the 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 kind of crisis for the javert character for the policeman is that he just cannot conceive that someone can be a criminal and also a good person because it it doesn't fit with his concept of of social structures of society and so on and and ultimately that's why he he ends up committing suicide at the end of uh you know the kind of end of his story is, is that he ends up drowning himself because he he cannot reconcile that. He, he he can't ignore the fact that this man who's a criminal who he's been pursuing for all these years is obviously a good man. But at the same time, he can't reconcile that with his understanding of the kind of the rule box that society lives in. Again, I suppose, you know, the, the Roddenberry box with the kind of the strictures of these are the good people. These are the bad people. These people behave in this way. You, you, you know, all of that is kind of is slightly threatened and undermined by that.
0: I think with um with Cisco as well in terms of that, and I think Eddington actually calls him on this at one point. I think there is that level of ego in that Cisco was affronted at the fact that Eddington did this, that he was one of his crew you know they got that he got away with this, that he got away literally, and I think as well as you know the the, the moral reasons and the simple fact that the federation need to stop the marquee from causing bigger problems. It is that whole idea that, you know, you you did this under my nose. You you betrayed me, essentially. And it's, it's personal for Cisco. It's very, very personal. And and he, he makes it personal for Eddington as well. And Eddington, like I said, I think he does call him on that. I think he does says, you did, you just don't like the fact that I got away and that I was able to do it under your nose. and And, and that makes it even more of an interesting conflict. And it does personalise something that could have been fairly ideological and distant. And that's why it's such a good relationship and it's something that isn't overplayed either they just they, they do it a couple of times every season and for about three seasons and it works just really well and it, and it, like I say it, it makes it just personalizes and deepens the marquee as, as, a, as an idea really
1: and it's also that kind of question of, of authority versus rebellion I mean actually one, one of the interesting things about the Javert character in the Hugo novel is, is that he has a line where he basically says to Javert as this policeman all crimes are essentially acts of rebellion against the state so there's this idea you know if you steal something if you you know, any crime that you commit you are basically an insurgent you're kind of attacking the state by, by not playing by its rules and I suppose with Sisko and Eddington there's very much that thing you know Cisco is the authority figure and his subordinate you know his child almost has turned against him and Ducat talks about this as well you know he sees the resistance as these kind of unruly children who are who are attacking their parents and he's he he sees himself as, as sort of trying to kind of rise above it and be just and fair and and you know be the perfect authority figure and the perfect parent while he's dealing with these kind of rebellious i mean we talked about a few episodes ago in the wrath of khan you know khan is this kind of promethean rebel character you know again there's this element of these characters who kind of don't respect authority who don't respect the person who's meant to be in charge and the person in charge doesn't know how to cope with that it's a it's a Deeply troubling thing for them. Even with Picard in Preemptive Strike, again, we see, you know, the last shot of that episode. I mean, we've been encouraged to feel quite sympathetic to Rolaron. Even Riker, who hated Rolaron to begin with, uh is actually seems to understand what she's doing. Picard is just, is like chillingly cold in that last scene of that episode. You know, the look on his face is just a kind of, um, he, he, he doesn't know how to process that somehow that kind of betrayal that kind of rebellion from someone who's supposed to have accepted his authority and supposed to be working for him and,
0: and they're not it's it's i mean apart from the when you mentioned riker apart from the irony that thomas riker ends up becoming a Marquis <laughs> later on <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah and stealing the default which i'm sure will riker if he when he found that out hated it um, and sadly we didn't really get a payoff between those two yeah the the idea of of the Marquis, interestingly enough almost seems to sharply sort of put the Federation into more of an authoritarian state focus in a way that you don't always expect from them, really. And, and I think it's something that you get as, as Star Trek goes, moves away from Roddenberry after Roddenberry's death and defines a lot more about what the Federation is throughout Deep Space Nine going on then into Voyager. But it kind of makes, the, especially in Deep Space Nine, it, it, they are much more of a of a of a militaristic force with you know with shades of right wingness to them, with shades of De Gaulle, with shades of these quite strong authoritarian figures who are doing what they must to survive. And they, it, it changes over the course of the twenty fourth century shows into something a lot more structured and rigid. And you know characters, you know like, like Picard and and Cisco and and these people who are, are betrayed by these rebels. It's, it's interesting. They're not the Cardassians. They're not, of course, you know, strict, you know, essentially fascists. They're, ne- they're never portrayed in those terms. But there is that level of authority within this, what is, you know, in the earlier Star Trek C- series, much more of almost like a utopian spacefaring force, you know, an organisation and that that kind of changes, and things like the marquee sort of sharpens that into more of an interesting focus, and 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 lev- adds a level to the federation that makes them much more of a hard-line sort of system, which is very interesting, really. And it's something that you wouldn't necessarily. I don't think Roddenberry would have would have wanted it. I think he'd have said no, <laughs> quite honestly. Well, even in in Journey's End, for example, you know, you have a
1: situation where basically. I mean, we've always had situations where there were bad morals or there were there were kind of bad orders coming down from on high. But basically, you sort of expect the the decent captain to oppose to refuse to carry them out. You know, we see that in insurrection. That's the kind of classic version of the story. In Journey's End, of course, you know, you have this bad treaty, you have the bad orders, but Picard ultimately is going to have to carry them out because that's his job. And I suppose there's that element of you know. So there's that on the one hand. There's there's people like Picard and Sisko, really their own beliefs, their own personal views their own politics are are sort of beside the point they're in a military structure people have to do what they're told you know their authority can't be challenged by those beneath them and equally up to a certain level they can't challenge the authority of the of the diplomats or the or the admirals whoever it is who's giving them their orders telling them look you know this is the treaty this is the decision that's been made been made um you have to enforce it you know that's your job and i suppose the fact that there's an element of uh moral compromise moral ambiguity discomfort um in that there's a there's a kind of challenge to the sort of radical autonomy of the captain who can go with their gut instinct who can do whatever they think is right who can say to hell with my orders i'm gonna you, you know i'm gonna do this instead and do the right thing and and you know there won't be any consequences later sort of thing it's a, it's a different model it's it's kind of putting them in that structure that uh it isn't necessarily aligned with their own core beliefs with their with their own opinions with their own
0: sense of right and wrong and it, it is something that you wouldn't have seen in the Kirk era you know where it was that more you know um gunboat diplomacy you know or, or you know that for flyboy diplomacy you know where you go in there and you would operate you know on your own terms really and and everything like that. it's it, it's very different it's it's very much that sense of yeah that there, there are there is a system there is a structure there is there is a bigger picture that you have to you have to be part of you know you have to toe the line on so the marquee bring that very sharply into focus and it's very, it's very interesting yeah no absolutely that's true I, I think also that you you know one of the things we see obviously with Deep Space
1: Nine there's this kind of very much you know looking at the kind of shades of grey looking at the kind of moral ambiguities the complicated situations the fact that people are not always free to make their ideal, to be their authentic self, to make their kind of ideal decision that they're, they're placed in circumstances beyond their control. And I think you, we see that never more uh, kind of crisply articulated than with Kira in that period in the, the beginning of the sixth season of Deep Space Nine, where she's been left on the station as this supposedly neutral Bajoran who has to work with the Cardassians, has to work with the Dominion. And it's kind of... It, it it's crushing her in a sense you know we see in that in the episode Rocks and Shells where she at the end of the episode she she does decide to form this kind of resistance cell but before that she's kind of just going through the motions she's she's you know she has to have coffee with them she has to kind of be polite and respectful to the cardassians she has to kind of go along with it and she ends up feeling as she says that she's become a collaborator because she is basically supporting the regime she's not fighting you know she's she's one of the people if you're not fighting them you're you're helping them and that's kind of what she's become and it's an amazing piece of writing on the part of the Deep Space Nine writers that they take this character who was this outspoken terrorist to begin with who you know utterly opposed to politics utterly opposed to following orders totally did her own thing you, you know believed in in rebellion and resistance and 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 you know going against what she was told and so on and she ends up being put in this position where for complex you know uh huge political reasons she's she's really squashed into this role that she she kind of can't Almost can't deal with, you know, and so she has this issue. She can't look herself in the in the mirror in the morning because she's not she's not herself. She's not being allowed to be herself. And actually, one of the people that I interviewed in, in for this book I'm doing about the Channel Islands, you know, I'd, I interviewed about 100 old people, and I asked them all the same question. I asked one of the questions I asked was what was the worst thing about living under German occupation for five years? And one guy, um, I'll, I'll never forget, he 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 started to answer this question. And there were tears running down his face, and he said basically. Um, I I just felt I couldn't be myself. I felt I didn't know who I could trust. I couldn't say, I couldn't speak my opinion on anything for fear that someone might be listening, that someone might inform on me. I just felt I wasn't my authentic self in a sense. And at the end of the occupation, he he said he suddenly felt free again. You you know, not free in some sense of, okay, you can go and do this thing, or there are these laws, or there's a curfew, or, you know, all these kind of practical restrictions. But just as a human being, he could be he he had the freedom to be himself and not to be kind of squished in that way and and it's interesting that that episode rocks and shells i was um because i was re-watching it recently i always thought it was very strange that the vedic who kind of awakens kira's sense that she has become this collaborator awakens this idea that as the vedic says evil must be opposed that basically she has a duty to resist uh regardless of all these other things um speaks with this very strong french accent and i always thought that's quite it's strange in a way this Bajoran character has come along with like a, a really thick French accent I looked up the actress the actress you know was a French actress and and of the generation she was actually in France she was in Paris during the German occupation so you know and I'm sure that must have been at the back of someone's mind when they were casting her for that role was that they actually brought someone in to to play that really pivotal role in that storyline who had lived through it themselves who had lived through that kind of you know the the real history that was being kind of evoked and and reinterpreted in the star trek version of the story and obviously brought that brought all of that to that performance in a way and it's a very you know brief uh guest role in a sense but she makes a very strong impact both through her actions and her words and and the kind of really pricking kira's conscience in that sense and kind of you know, changing uh, her understanding of, of of what's going on and what her role is in it. And, and the fact that she can have a degree of autonomy, and she can do something. Um, and I suppose, you know, for the people in France, that was a, a big appeal of the resistance. There was a kind of morale element to it. I mean, one of the things that Guy Matthew Cobb talks about in that book is the BBC broadcasts that were going out every night, and they would, they would have these cryptic messages. They, they was one something about Esculapius is not hungry, or you know, these kind of really strange, random, uh, mysterious sayings that that did, did mean something to individual resistance cells, they know how to interpret them. But he was saying that actually, also, just for the general French people, they were a kind of symbol, they were a sense of there's something going on, there are people out there who understand this, we don't understand it, obviously, the Germans don't understand it. It was a kind of reassurance that, that there was a, an alternative to just going along with the status quo and, and staying in your place and doing the right thing, that there was some kind of, there was something more, there was something bigger that you could be a part of. And that that gave a lot of people a lot of hope.
0: Yeah, I think that that whole journey that Kira undertakes, linked to this, is a major reason why she gets so involved in the Cardassian resistance against the, the Dominion. Which is, I mean, Deep Space Nine is wonderful at having really great character arcs for pretty much everybody. You know, the the characters they were at the beginning are not the characters who they are by the end. They change, they grow, they develop, and it's remarkably well done on Deep Space Nine. And with Kira, you know, you described it very well in in terms of her journey, but it almost seems like the culmination of a real full-circle journey, that Kira would go and help the very people who wiped out most a lot of her race were the evil enemy for almost her entire life that she would go there and she would help them survive, you know, on Cardassia Prime. And I think it's, it's, you know, I mentioned earlier about history repeating in Deep Space Nine, that it has a very cyclical idea of, of this, you know, and even down to the very last line, you know, where Quark says, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. It's, it, 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 Deep Space Nine is very aware of the cyclical nature of history about things repeating. And I think, you know, the, the fact that it, it's an it's genius piece of storytelling actually to have the Cardassians go through what the Bajorans did it really is and it's it's a wonderful bit of you know that light bulb moment they must have had when they decided that was going to happen must have been wonderful so for Kira to go there and actually help damar you know who becomes the Jean Moulin who becomes the Shakar, who becomes the the face of the you know the, the man of the resistance essentially to do that is a is a is a brilliant uh, level of story and a, a brilliant callback back to the Bajoran resistance and to all these things that, you know, were at the beginning of Deep Space Nine and help make the ending of the show even more emotional, I think, really, and, t- and tying to, to the underlying themes that have been going on all the way through. And it's, I, I always think it's just, a, it's just a bit of a genius stroke that whole storyline.
1: Well, it's so bold. I mean, both those, both those stories, the the occupation of the station storyline, you know, turning this sort of archetypal resistance fighter into, as she puts it herself, a collaborator, uh, incredibly bold decision, you, you know, and then to, as you say, to kind of turn everything on its head, to put the Cardassians in this, that situation. And even by the point that, you, you know, and Damar, who's this hateful character, you, you know, he kills ZR, he's a real brute, he's kind of sexist, he's he's kind of leering, he's a really unpleasant piece of work, basically, for most of the series. And yet, somehow, he finds something within him that inspires people. And and he is this really inspirational figure by the end, and by the end of Deep Space Nine, you're willing the Cardassians to rise up, you're... you're you know, you're totally on their side. It's an astonishing piece of writing. I mean, and that's the thing about the, the writing of Deep Space Science. Is it's, it is so out of the box. It is so uh, unpredictable. I mean, it's it it's brilliant in, in that, as you say, there's this kind of cyclical element and things repeating. So it seems very, there's a kind of tidiness to that. But at the same time, it's wildly unexpected, the direction they go in. It's, it's just a kind of um, a really sort of radical approach to... To, to where to push that story and, and what direction to go in. And I think that's that's one of the reasons that it that it works. There's also, um I mean interestingly, the the, the role that Kira plays there was something that the the French resistance, they they did have Americans who were flown in to kind of give them some military not advice in guerrilla warfare so much, but just sort of straightforward military training to kind of train up some of those some of those groups. But there but there was, as you were mentioning, this kind of issue about how much were the allies going to arm them. You know, they would send them guns in these these caches that they dropped. They wouldn't send them heavy artillery. They didn't want to kind of overarm them. And as a result, in some cases, they basically weren't able to defend themselves and and got wiped out for lack of support. And I suppose always with these rebel groups, you, you know, we see this kind of anxiety. How do the larger state entities sort of deal with that? I mean, there's there's with the Marquis in, in Deep Space Nine, there's this kind of question mark to begin with. Are, are, the, are the Federation arming their rebels? Are the Cardassians arming their rebels, you, you know, with the Circle trilogy, with that rebel movement, the Cardassians turn out to have been secretly arming what appear to be the the opposite side. This is the idea of the kind of the big state operators arming these local groups to do their work for them. With the with the Marquis storyline, um, it actually turns out that last Eddington episode, the episode Blaze of Glory, um, the apparent crisis is set up because the Klingons have been providing technology to the Marquis because they see them as fighting the Cardassians, they see them as fighting the Dominion. They they sort of assume they're on the same side and they've been giving them cloaking devices uh and then the marquee potentially are using these on their weapons and and doing very dangerous things with them so again there's that sort of idea of you you know how much how safe is it for a state actor to provide this kind of materiel to a, a rebel group that they may not be able to control and of course in you know in our lifetimes a lot of the problems that we have around the world to do with terrorism and to do with you know Destabilization of different areas and so on are, are very much connected to these ideas of you know well, okay we, we if that's the kind of support that we give to rebel groups you know what on earth happens afterwards what on earth happens if they win you know we're not we're not kind of in control of that situation and that was uh, an anxiety going back all the way to the Second World War
0: indeed yeah and it and it and they are, that it goes back to that question of what happens when you know when we win you know and when the Cardassians do manage to to succeed you know and the and the founders are you know, push back or they're arrested or, you know, and the, and the federation arrive, it is that whole idea of, you know, when the federation, Admiral Ross and Cisco and Martuk are in the, uh, you know, the Cardassian, you know, central command, it's, it's, it's the allies in Berlin, isn't it? It's that whole <laughs> thing of, you know, they're all, they're all standing there, you know, um, and it's, it's a very bittersweet victory. It, it, then what happens, you know, then what happens to a, a, a destroyed Cardassia? Like what, what happened to a destroyed Bajor? In the end, we don't we don't see the 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 follow on really except in like continuation novels and things like that. But in the end, the Federation are there to help prop up the Cardassians and help them rebuild, you know. And, and like they did with Bajor, it becomes again the cyclical kind of thing. And you know, obviously, Damar becomes the martyr. You know, he he doesn't survive to to see it. And Garak, ironically, ends up the going staying there in order to help this rebuild. You know, the the exile, the the spymaster is is potentially going to go on and be, you know, a major part of the reconstruction of Cardassia, which is an irony in itself. But it's 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 a really interesting when you look at the idea of resistance and you look at the idea of, of what these people have to do and the moral complexity of it and then you know what happens next. It's a really complex, interesting topic. And it's amazing how just how much Star Trek deals with it actually and how interested Star Trek is in this very idea. Absolutely. And I
1: suppose maybe it does come down to this idea of the kind of appeal of... I mean, we, we talked a bit about Captain Kirk, the you know, the guy who never follows orders, or the the kind of a, the idea of the kind of radical autonomy of the, the captain who can do what they like, of the kind of person who who does what they think is... you know, who acts on instinct, who acts on a kind of moral gut feeling rather than, you know, responding to authority. And I suppose that's one of the reasons that the Cardassian um, resistance movement does kind of inspire our sympathies, despite the fact that we're, we're not predisposed to feel very positively towards Cardassians on the whole, you, you know, a few exceptions uh, aside, is because it, it's the fact that they discover, and this is what horrifies the the founder so much, that they discover that it's not, it, it, it's not necessarily military forces, it's not necessarily resistance forces. It's ordinary people are inspired by this and are pledging themselves to those forces. Ordinary people are taking an individual decision to switch sides you, you know that final battle the the, the ships starts switching sides and there's that kind of i suppose it's it's a, a representation of that kind of rebellious spirit of not doing what you're told of not doing what your masters have told you to do and of course again you know as we were talking about how cisco and picard deal with these threats to their authority the founder basically orders genocide as a response to that she but she basically is so you know furious at the fact that that it's not just a resistance group. It's not just a kind of terrorist group. It's actually, you you know, these are just ordinary people joining the fight, essentially joining that movement, um, making that decision for themselves, not doing what they're told that it kind of um, that's the final straw as far as the Dominion's concerned, you know, because they're all about Dominion. They're all about control. They're all about um, order. Um, And it's a kind of from this society that appears to be very uh, or extremely authoritarian, you know, quite kind of fascist society, suddenly individual people seem to be exercising their individual rights to, to you know, do with their life what they want, to sacrifice their own life for something they believe in, to ignore their orders, to, you, you know, to do the right thing. And, and I suppose that's what, it, it, it's almost like the Cardassians sort of wake up from their from their kind of cultural conditioning, from their kind of 1984 society where everything is kind of imposed and, and uh, you know, propaganda and this kind of, you, you know, because they do have a very kind of fascist state in that sense. And suddenly people are are not doing what they're, what they're told. And, you, you know, the guard who's meant to be guarding Damar, switch his sides and, and rescues him instead or, or, or whatever it is. They're, they're kind of people are making individual decisions and and therefore we can kind of respect them more somehow.
0: And what's really fascinating is the is the idea that in the aftermath, in the ashes of it all, with the right people involved, it could, in theory, potentially Cardassia become a socialist state. It could eventually become that kind of, you know, that kind of place that France didn't become or or that the, the Marquis and the and the resistance fighters maybe wanted. That idea of some of something that starts again, you know, and he's very much, you know, by the people for the people, and for Cardassia potentially to have to have the prospect of a future like that, given their past, given their history, given what they did to others, is is very ironic, and you know, from what would be considered a certain level of you know poetic justice about them suffering in the way that they made the Bajorans suffer, it all it all it also becomes maybe that central Star Trek message of goodness can come out of this, you know, that a good you know, a, a, a positive change and a more forward-thinking, progressive society can exist in the ashes of, of war and death, and genocide and murder and everything like that. So it's, I suppose, in a way, it's ultimately very hopeful. It's a very hopeful message that the end of the Cardassian resistance delivers, really.
1: Yeah, and I suppose it's true. I mean, y- y- you know, and, and you know, if we saw a Star Trek series a hundred years down the line or whatever, it may be that the Cardassians would look back on that moment as a kind of rebirth in a sense, however much, however many millions of people were killed and however great the cost and so on, and however disastrous the defeat, it was a, you, you know, that it can be sort of seen as a new beginning. We, of course, in the Second World War, we have these positive things that come out of it, you know, the, you know, the formation of Europe as a kind of, uh, as a kind of block, the, uh, you know, in Britain, the welfare state, the establishment of the NHS, all these kind of positive socialist, essentially, things that did come out of that period, because people had rallied together to such an extent, and there was a feeling, a national Feeling or an international feeling of trying to kind of strive for something better trying to to you know create a new world that was going to be better and safer and fairer um, in all these ways from what was there before and it's something that is there in the discussions around the Cardassian uh, resistance because actually garrick says something quite interesting in one of those episodes when when damar's family are killed in you know very much in the kind of way of nazi kind of brutality and reprisals and and so on his, his his family including his children are killed and he says um he's he says who would do something like that and kira says to him yeah demar who would do that i basically you know you would uh, and they did um and then she then she sort of kicks herself and says, I shouldn't have done that. That was, you know, that was me getting emotional. That was, that's not what I'm supposed to be doing in this situation. And Garrick says to her, no, actually, that's, that's an important message for him to hear because he, what he, what he says is Demar is too kind of nostalgic for the old Cardassia. He's too, he, he's, he's in his head, he wants to go back to how things were before where they were this great power and this great authority and all this stuff. And what Garrick's saying is actually he needs to throw that out the window and create something new and create a new movement. And this, I suppose what you do see in that kind of resistance movement, it's not a return to the control of the Cardassian military or whatever. It's, uh, it's not a return to Cardassia when they were ruling over Bajor and a great military power. It's this idea of something more individual and more kind of
0: hopeful. And it, and, it, and it is a really sweet ironic ending to things. And yeah, it's, it's a, it is a great Star Trek message ultimately that comes out of it. So yeah, it's a it's a really interesting topic, and I think we've we've talked about some really fascinating resistance ideas and and the and the very meanings, you know, and touching on literature with Victor, Victor Hugo and and Les Mis and all this kind of stuff. That factors into a a very juicy topic, really. And that there is more to talk about about around the idea of of, of occupations and resistance resistances and things like that. I mean, a topic I think we we're keen to get into one day down the road is is the the Holocaust comparisons with what the Cardassians do to the Bajorians and things like that. So there's the flip side of it in terms of that, which is really interesting to talk about. But yeah, I think in terms of resistance, Star Trek does it well. Absolutely. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And particularly Deep Space Nine. I mean, Deep Space Nine, for whatever reason comes back again and again and again to this topic. Uh, it really seems to be, you, you know, it's a well that never runs dry in a sense, and and constantly reinventing it, constantly looking at it a different way, but always with this same kind of inspiration of this of the French resistance and particularly the Marquis in the background and kind of informing those those various storylines um, in different,
0: varied, uh, often quite surprising ways. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, as we say, if you want to find out more about resistance in general, apart from. Obviously, watching all these fantastic Star Trek episodes that we've talked about, look up the Resistance by Matthew Cobb. It's a very good book. It gives you a, a wealth of detail, and we we said just before we recorded that you know quite a lot of it is so dense and complicated that we were like, whew, <laughs> taking a lot of it in. It's quite he's quite something really, but it is it is a, it's a worthy book for people to check out, isn't it, Duncan? If they want to learn more about the French Resistance, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think maybe part of the
1: issue is that. I certainly came to this story thinking there was a thing called the French resistance and somehow it was this kind of entity. And I suppose reading that book uh, on the sun lounger in the south of France, which is probably not the, <laughs> the best environment for it to seep into my brain very clearly. But um, I guess if anything, the, the, the message that I got out of it is there was not there was no one resistance. There were all these different groups and all these different goals and all these different people with different attitudes and different aspirations. and And, and also people weren't necessarily you know, they would fight alongside people they didn't really necessarily agree with. You know, people were willing to make temporary kind of arrangements, in a sense, if they had a a common cause. I mean, I mean even in the Channel Islands example, I've been uh, writing this week about a guy I interviewed who, you know, he was involved in some kind of, you know, uh, I suppose, sort of more like kind of passive humanitarian resistance activities. And a lot of them were coordinated by the local communist party. And he said to me, look, I wasn't a communist, you know, I've never been a communist, but they were the people doing the kind of, you know, they they were the people who were involved in the kind of things that he wanted to be doing and making a difference. So he had no issue with, um, you know, sort of signing up for a communist group, even not being a communist. So I suppose it, it, in all these ways, the, the realities of the French resistance turn out to be much more complicated, much more nuanced, much more um, varied than maybe that maybe we think of in that kind of cultural sense, you, you know, whether it's a low a low whether it's the killing game, whatever our kind of, our mental images are of what it means to be a resistance fighter and, and and what that involves, that actually, you know, the reality was much more complicated. And in various ways, again, you know, Deep Space Nine touches on that because it does muddy the waters it it muddies the kind of moral questions it kind of reinvents the stories by changing who's in what position and and you know applying this kind of poetic irony uh putting people in in a situation that you wouldn't have expected them to be in and so in every way i suppose it, it ties into really that idea of trying to complicate rather than simplify and again trying to kind of emphasize the individuals at the expense of the kind of the monolith.
0: It really does. It really does. And as as we say, it does it extremely well on the whole. So yeah, check out those episodes. Check out the book. And um, we're going to resist the urge to carry on talking about this. (laughs) Resistance is not futile. (laughs) But
1: uh, I suppose that's that's the message. That's certainly the message of the Bajoran resistance. The the Marquis maybe would disagree, but, you know. Yeah, maybe. That was bad luck on their
0: part. (laughs) Definitely, yeah. But yeah, we will resist the urge to keep talking about this because uh, Duncan and I discussing the uh, resistance, the French resistance, the Bajoran resistance, uh, and beyond is not all that's happening on Trek FM this week. So let's have a little look at what else has been going on on the network previously on trek.fm standard orbit so trek 3 was really good but man that bridge was cheap that, that was set. that set was horrible ma- anyway. ma- maybe sh- maybe they had a deal maybe, sh- maybe, maybe shattered into this vic 20 commercial in the game some commodores for the bridge like, oh we got you we got you covered man so. yeah because when it said good morning captain it looked a lot like the graphics we just witnessed on the commodore the 602 club
1: As I mentioned previously, completely blind. And
0: not having known this history about him wanting to do a Tolkien-like world, I I didn't get that at all. I mean, that's just, nope. Continuing Mission. Mm. is a lot, a lot of fun. And I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to do that, If I'm going to get back into there, I'm going to make it something that everybody has always wanted to find out and see. Who would win if Kirk took on Picard? And not, let's, okay, so let's just up the game a little bit. Let's throw in Janeway. Let's throw in Cisco. Hey, let's throw in Captain Pike. (laughs) Why not? And introducing The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. What have you done
1: out there on the edge of Federation of Space? Welcome to The Edge, Trek FM's
0: brand new podcast where we dive into the final frontier of the newest Star Trek series, Star Trek Discovery. The first Star Trek series to be on air in 12 and a half years, something like that. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe, and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please do leave us a star rating and a written review at the same time. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website, or grab the RSS link. If you'd also like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com/trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits and more, available through our special patrons website, the Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Duncan and I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get involved and do just that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners' group on Facebook. Just type Babel. B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. You can find Duncan and I on the Babel Conference as well, and you can find us both on Twitter, Duncan at Barrett's Books, and myself, Tony, at Black Hole Media. And you can also find me hosting my own podcast, The Xcast and X Podcast, if you type that into Twitter and Facebook. So thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture. We'll be back soon to discuss more history, culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended already. Right.